The two letters to the Thessalonians are some of the Apostle Paul's earliest writings, written in the early 50s A.D. Uh, we, uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, the letters uh, potentially were written before the Gospels were, and so that's an interesting idea when you think about the Apostle Paul's activity uh, in church planting and so forth early on. Um, this early stage in Christianity, it may surprise you, uh, apparently contained scams, false letters, false teachers. Uh, these were already destabilizing believers, casting doubt on the truths revealed by Christ in the Scriptures early on, not long after. And of course, perhaps we could identify even during our Lord Jesus Christ's time on this earth, there were people... Uh, being used as tools of Satan such that they would turn people away from the living God. As a matter of fact, uh, the reference here in chapter 2, verse 1, chapter 2, verse 2, he exhorts them not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter, seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. If you live on planet Earth and have a computer, you have received a letter, more than likely, that seemed to be from someone that it wasn't. And so it might surprise you that so early as the 50s A.D., this was occurring and the Apostle Paul was addressing the issues. The devil and his minions can't tear us from the grips of Christ and redemption, but they can render us confused, ineffective, and fearful and use us as tools to perpetuate false or poor theology. I mean, how many of us have heard something and repeated it as if it were theologically sound? And then we find out later that it actually isn't true. And so we... If, if you haven't done that, then you are in a rare position. Uh, because even those... Uh, most genuine and sincere students of the Scriptures sometimes find themselves as accidental heretics because uh, they didn't really understand, as the Apostle Paul says, the foundations of our faith, the traditions that we handed down to you, referring to the Thessalonians. Because it's relatively simple to hold on to and appreciate certain outward forms and expressions of Christianity as we should, and because these outward forms are often how we access true Christian fellowship and teaching, when they're shaken, those who are using them as foundations for their faith are also shaken. Now, the point uh, that I'm trying to make is, is that the Apostle Paul is drawing our attention to the immovability of the foundations of our faith. Uh, and the foundations of our faith, I think it's appropriate that we see them uh, as really being two things. Two things. It might surprise you that the primary foundation of our faith is the orthodox biblical understanding of truth. That is the foundation of our faith. And that foundation is moored to the cornerstone, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is a very important idea. And the Apostle Paul was recognizing that the Thessalonians were being destabilized in their faith, partly because they were casting an understanding of the foundations of their faith on individuals and Unfortunately, we are inclined to do the same thing. There are individuals and fellowships and so forth that carry much weight 
And when things go awry with them, it appears that the very foundations of what it is that we're about are moving. And if you're, if you're looking to them or these outward forms, then you will seem to be on shaky ground. And the absolute unfortunate inclination is to remove oneself from that which they desperately need. And that is the church of Christ, the pillar and support of the truth. The pillar and support of the truth. That passage in 1 Timothy that refers to a pillar of the support and truth, I would encourage you to recognize that there is no article in front of that word pillar, that the church is the pillar and support of the truth. The Apostle Paul was drawing their attention to this. Most of us have experienced the jumpiness, the lack of confidence, the discouragement that comes when we become unmoored from our spiritual sense of well-being. The shakenness inclines people, again, as I said, to leave the foundations of their faith and spiritual growth. That is the truthfulness and comprehensive nature of the Bible, the nature of man and its crushing problem of sin, the absolute necessity of being a person of humble teachableness when one approaches God, the Scriptures themselves. When destabilization occurs, again, we're inclined to question why those things become unstable. When the truth is only Christ and the foundations of truth will remain stable. The Apostle Peter perhaps said it best, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. Why are we surprised when things that are unstable are in fact unstable? Right? Now, you may have the inclination to go run off into a cave and remove yourself from all social interaction. That's not what the Apostle Paul counsels. The biblical resolution is not to chuck the outward forms and expressions, the people, the institutions, but to make sure these are firmly attached, holding fast to that which is truly immovable, Christ and the foundations of faithful teaching for the church. Now, one of the important aspects of this, uh, additionally, is this idea that God has called us to grow in self-distrust. Now, I'm not sure how that makes you feel, but the point as we grow in Christ is that we lay aside the things that we've been trusting ourselves for. Because one of the things that God impresses upon us with our redemption and the continued work of the Holy Spirit is this idea that we personally, are among those things that are unstable. But that's a very hard lesson to learn. And it is something that likely we will work against every day of our lives. Now, I'm also, as the Apostle Paul does, going to bring your attention at some point, hopefully, in this passage, to this idea of conviction. Now, conviction is an urgently important uh, idea that we must embrace and grow in, but we've got to distinguish conviction in the truth and foundations of God from self-trust. Because oftentimes conviction looks like a, a, a blustery confidence in oneself. But that's not the concept of biblical conviction. The concept of biblical conviction is this idea that I believe what God has said and I will act in accordance with what God has said. And that's conviction, right? And so the Apostle Paul, again, is hammering away at, at this idea with both of the letters to the Thessalonians. He, he uh, is repeating himself here uh, as he talks about this situation. We're shaken and alarmed because we're unstable. We're confused because we're drawn to hold on to something for stability that wasn't designed for that purpose. 
I draw your attention to chapter 2, verse 15. He says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And I would draw your attention to 3, 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. Now the Apostle Paul is identifying two issues, two particular issues associated with uh, with the destabilization of the Christians in Thessalonica. One of those is simply, what does it look like before the Lord returns? Has He already returned? As a matter of fact, that's the question that was destabilizing them, and the Apostle Paul reminded them of what he had already taught them about the man of lawlessness. But also in chapter 3, we see that apparently there was uh, uh, perhaps a growing influence among those people that had, if you will, realized, or I should say had entered into an over-realized eschatology. And what I mean by that is they were acting as if the Lord had already returned, or perhaps that they were in heaven, that there was nothing for them to do, that now they're idle. They're languishing, sitting around like one who waits for a bus when the Lord Jesus has redeemed us for good works, right? And so we see this in chapter 3. There are many things that can catch us by surprise and lead us very slowly down a wrong path. When we develop affectionate relationships with people that lack discernment and are unmoored themselves. This is one of the very, very important reasons that, uh, that those who are single guard their hearts as they enter into relationships with others. Because what can happen is our affections can outrun our ability to discern truth. And we begin to diminish those things which in fact are very important. You fall in love with an unbeliever and you've just purchased for yourself a tremendous amount of grief and you've also stepped into something that has been commanded in Scripture for you not to do and that is to marry and be unequally yoked. And so that's important for us because some of these outward forms have to do with our relationships with other people. And the point isn't that we're annoyingly guarding ourselves, but the point is is that we are, we are firmly and growing in our attachment to those things that are immovable. And then that makes us far more available for people uh, that are not so attached to these immovable foundations of our faith, and then we can in fact help them and walk with them in grace and learn ourselves instead of being drawn into the situation that they are in. The very simple illustration of this is is the, the drowning man. The drowning man cares about one thing, and that's air. And he will climb over you to get to it. And He will kill you if you let Him. But if you're stable, then you can help the drowning man. And that's the idea behind it. It requires us to have a firm grasp on the truth and to be able to distinguish truth from error. Now I have a question for you. In what form... Do destabilizing afflictions come? In what form do destabilizing afflictions come? Now, I'm using this word destabilize. The Apostle Paul, uh, and uh, I certainly will continue to use this idea of shakenness or being alarmed. Those are the biblical words, but synonyms seem to be helpful on occasion for us to understand. The reality is, is that Paul is addressing something that we really do deal with every day. And that's uh, a certain sense about where we stand with the Lord. 
which way is right? How do I know what God means for me to do here? Right? And these, some of these relationships that we may enter into may draw us away from the foundational truths that God would intend for us to live by. What form did destabilizing afflictions come? Well, who's behind them? Well, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he said, We wanted to come to you, that is the Thessalonians, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Now, the point isn't that we're going to directly blame Satan as the first cause for every problem in your life, but we need to recognize that destabilization in our Christian walk has demonic foundations. And so when we ask ourselves, what does a demonic affliction look like that's going to destabilize me, it might surprise you that it's going to be potentially quite subtle. It might be an occasion where you affirm a certain truth and then you walk a little further into that and then you find that things appear to be at variance with the Bible. But at some point, sometimes we recognize that we've gotten a little bit far into this. Just like Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress with Hopeful. The path they were on was very rocky. And they noticed that there was a path right directly parallel to the path that they were on that appeared to go in the same place that they were going that was soft grass. And so they decided to jump over the fence and to walk on that soft grass. And where did they end up? Well, they ended up at a place ruled by a certain individual, both of which are very illustrious for the situation. They ended up in the castle of doubt, ruled by one giant despair. So they purchased for themselves doubt and despair because they lacked discernment. And they allowed the foundational truths, this simple idea, this is the path, walk ye in it. And they stepped aside. And they paid a terrible price for it. What form do destabilizing afflictions come? And what form does help come? And what form does help come? You say, well, I need a special vision. I need, a, I need a unique word from God. I, I, I got I to have a break. I, I need a clutch here. I need, I, I, there's got to be a unique breakthrough. Maybe it'll be a bumper sticker on the way to church. I don't know. Well, what does the Apostle Paul say? He directs us back to the foundations of our faith. Shaken in mind like a ship. Chapter 2, verse 2 here, he says, Do not be quickly shaken in mind. Again, the illustration here, the language here is nautical, no doubt, having to do with the ship coming unmoored. Now, think with me for a moment. I don't know if you've ever noticed the kind of ropes that ships are tied to moors with. But they're pretty big. They're pretty big. 
maybe a two inch in diameter rope or something like that. Of course, they use more than one, of course. And so imagine what it would take to tear a ship away from a mooring. And the Apostle Paul, again, is directing them not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. Troubled, a continual state of jumpiness. This, you're just you're uncertain about things, right? You don't know. You 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 show up and something else happens, and you just shake your head and you you want to go crawl into a hole or something, right? And then verse three, he says, "Let no one deceive you in any way. Let no one deceive you in any way." Now, this is an exhortation. It's a charge. The Apostle Paul uh, isn't uh, fearful about using the word command, of course, as he exhorts the Thessalonians. And, um, and he says this. He says, he says, let no one deceive you. Now, many, many people have been deceived. And what do you think when you finally discover that you've been deceived? How does it make you feel? Maybe it makes you feel used. Maybe it makes you feel... Abused. Maybe it makes you feel tossed as a wave in the wind. But the Apostle Paul has exhorted us not to let anyone deceive us. So how, how are we going to enter into the meaning of that? How are we going to allow that to come to fruition, that we not be deceived. Well, there's a myriad of ideas that come to mind, right? One of those is never to have another friend. Never get married. Never join a church. Never be part of a Bible study. Never pray with people. Never share vulnerable thoughts. Right? That's one way. That's one way. But what does the Apostle Paul direct the Thessalonians to? He doesn't direct their attention primarily to the afflictions, right? He directs their attention to that which is stable and immovable, to the foundations of their faith and to the cornerstone, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so then we're ready, attached in union to the Lord Jesus, and we can see that the Lord intends for us to, in fact, grow, enter into relationships, grow in those, be used, to be sharpened, to sharpen others as well, and that He will work that, but that, again, we're attached to that which is stable, the Lord Jesus Christ and the foundations of our faith. The Thessalonians understood that in their redemption regarding a grasp and commitment to truth, they had a choice. They had a choice. Their redemption to which they were called is in direct contrast with those carried off with the man of lawlessness. The man of lawlessness that's addressed in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And who's carried off with them? Well, those who refuse to love the truth. The best safeguard against being carried off into error and the hardening effects of sin is love of the truth. In chapter 2, verse 13, he says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you from the beginning for salvation, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth.
Now look at the alternative. This man of lawlessness, those who were drawn because they didn't love the truth, Verse 10, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Verse 11, therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. Now that's a scary verse. Right? So what's the alternative to not merely having the truth. The Apostle Paul doesn't discuss having the truth. He discusses loving the truth, right? And so the way that we're not going to be swept into error and persuaded of that which is erroneous is a love for the truth. In chapter 1, verse 6, the the Bible says that God afflicts those who afflict His people with error. Now, that's judgment. There are a number of people that are wondering when the Lord's going to judge our country. Well, I recognize there, there may be more challenging days ahead, but the reality is God is already judging our country. We're, we're, we're adrift in theological error, studiously so. And he is directing our attention back to that which is right and good and true. So another question perhaps for us. We, most of us would agree that we have the truth, right? We have the Scriptures, right? We have a guide for the Scriptures. We have a, a faithful body of theological understanding to assist us in reading our Scriptures. But that's not what the Apostle Paul addresses. What he's saying is, do you love the truth? Do you love the truth? Now let's look back to 1 Thessalonians in chapter 3, if you don't mind turning a few pages back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 and verse 10. And I would draw your attention to the great anxiety that Paul and the church planters had regarding the nurturing of genuine and saving faith. Look at this sense of urgency that Paul has in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. We sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in the faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction. Paul is saying, remember remember what I told you again and again. We were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know for this reason when I could bear it no longer. I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Again, the the, the satanic underpinnings of that which destabilizes and afflicts us is right here in chapter 3. Verse 5, the Apostle Paul is directing their attention to this. Looking back at verse 3 in chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians, he says, No one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. And you say, well, yeah, Paul, I mean, we know that you were destined for affliction. I mean, we can see it all over your face. Your, your body is covered with scars. You tell these amazing stories. We know you were destined for affliction. And Paul says, no, 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 no. You were destined for affliction. The recipients of the letter were destined for affliction. Just the same as you were destined for something else. And that is your salvation. We rejoice, as he says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that you were called of God and set aside for salvation. 
Nobody's questioning the Thessalonians' saving faith. For that they were destined. Sometimes we call that predestination. Sometimes we call that election before the foundation of the world. But there's something else that they were also elected to. Affliction. You say, well, I don't, I don't really want that. I mean, I, can I do the other and not have both of those? There's only one way. There's only one way. Only one way. Jesus could have decided to grow you up in your faith, sipping pina coladas on the beach. But He studiously decided not to do that and to provide your growth in grace by way of affliction. And again, this affliction comes in different forms. And those afflictions will incline to destabilize our faith, but the Apostle Paul is drawing us again to stabilization. This great anxiety that the Apostle Paul had for the Thessalonians, he was so very concerned about them because he saw that they were movable, they were shifting, they were, they were confused and so forth and so on. And, and, and they think all different kinds of things and he again draws them back to the traditions that we gave you, the foundations of our faith, the truth of God, the orthodox understanding of the gospel whose cornerstone is the Lord Jesus Christ. Timothy was sent to establish and exhort in their faith so that no one would be moved by these afflictions. Paul understands that the normal course of the ministry of the Word is to supply what is lacking in the faith of the truly redeemed and to prevent the sense of being tossed as waves in the wind. Now, this is a little bit uncomfortable for us. As a matter of fact, it may strike at the very understanding that we have of what it is that our redemption means. The popular understanding of biblical redemption, justification in the Lord Jesus Christ, that what's, uh, what in our own experience sets us on the course of, uh, of heaven, we may be inclined to view as many do, that somehow our redemption is the final and only step in our relationship to the Lord Jesus. But the Apostle Paul and the Scriptures know nothing of that. They understand uh, that, uh, that the way that we grow in grace is to have supplied what is lacking in our faith. And you say, well, I thought when I got redeemed that there wasn't any lack. That I had it all. Well, yes, you, you have your union with the Lord Jesus who has all that you need for life and godliness. But we're just like those disciples on that boat with the Lord Jesus. He says, where is your faith? And the accusation wasn't that they weren't saved. It's that they weren't walking in and doing their faith. They lacked discernment. They were drawn to the affliction of the storm instead of being drawn to that which is immovable, the truth of Christ and Christ Himself. What do we expect demonic affliction to look like? It can look like all kinds of things. It can look like an unexpected death in your family. It can look like a financial reversal. It can look like a friendship gone bad. It can look like uh, you getting a promotion. Coming into a bit of money can be destabilizing. It messes with our heads. What do we expect 
demonic affliction to look like? The answer to this might be private, it might be personal, but it, it is absolutely pressing, it's pertinent, it's certainly reasonable that we address and biblically deal with affliction in the realm in which public church discipline is appropriate, but this isn't the only or main source of affliction which disturbs our faith. The main point is that we're growing in our immovability as we're moored to the foundations of biblical orthodoxy with Christ as the cornerstone. Now this brings up an important point. I've been discussing the foundations of our faith. The Apostle Paul addresses this idea In chapter 2, verse 15, he says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. In chapter 3, verse 6, he says, We command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. I want to draw your attention to two very important things that might surprise you. He doesn't say embrace Jesus. That's not what he says. He says you've got to hold to biblical orthodoxy. When I say I'm holding to Jesus, it may very well be a cop-out. We are burdened with having to understand the truth of God. We cannot simply say, I'm holding on to Jesus. Yes, the Lord Jesus Christ is our Savior. In Him, we are in union with the Savior. And through Him, we receive all of the benefits of our salvation. But that does not relieve us from the absolute certainty that we must be growing in the foundations, the traditions passed down to us, orthodox, faithful, biblical Christianity. Time and time again, Time and time again, all of us have heard, I don't know what the Bible says, but I know Jesus. And the demons shudder because they know Jesus also. The reason we may be attracted to having Christ alone as the foundation, again, is because it allows us to be rather nebulous in our walk and adherence to Christ, when in reality it places great responsibility upon us to actually know and understand the truth. When the, when the Apostle Paul exhorts the Thessalonians to love the truth, that isn't code language for loving Jesus. It's absolutely understood that they will be absolutely devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. This, there's no contest here. There's not some sort of priority in which our love for that which we should love is some zero-sum game, but he's simply saying that we must love the truth. Somebody had a, a funny, I think, useful illustration it seems that the question was asked if someone from many hundreds of years ago were to come and show up and ask you what the most amazing thing in your life is or in the culture that you live in, often it seems that the answer would be the cell phone in which you have access to every, practically everything that was ever written in the universe. And, uh, and so the answer was, yes, I use this amazing tool to look at pictures of cats and argue with people that I don't know. And we have the truth of the Scriptures. And we have an incredible amount of body of knowledge. We have a local church community that teaches us the truth. And, and what, what do we do with it? That's the Apostle Paul's point. 
The sheer ambivalence with which some approach the preaching and teaching of the Word of God reveals one's real thoughts on the matter. This is more dangerous than it seems. In one's better moments, when real spiritual clarity prevails in the thoughts, we often recognize our desperate need for real spiritual admonishment and exhortation. I've heard many lament their spiritual poverty. Woe is me, I'm a sinful man, they say. Or or they say, can you help me with this from the Scriptures? But often that's it. That's the last I hear. It's as if, if, if it, it's as if understanding where I am is the one and only step that's necessary. As if real clarity and effort it took to affirm one's spiritual poverty is that only step to real growth in the immovability of attachment to Christ. We struggle to stay afloat and then push away the Savior. Yes, the Savior. He's behind the ministry of the Word. When the Lord's Day arrives, it's as if we forget we were hungry and have decided to try the next week with little or no spiritual sustenance again. Paul doesn't exhort believers to great effort in removing afflictions. But the center point of the oughtness he charges us with is growth in holiness and usefulness in this sinful world. In the context of affliction. The Apostle Paul boasts on the Thessalonians. In chapter 1, verse 6 of 1 Thessalonians, he says, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now, we may... We may misunderstand, so the Apostle Paul is very commendable of the Thessalonians. He, he affirms their saving faith. He's very boastful. He boasts to other churches about the Thessalonians, right? But, but that doesn't mean that there is therefore no necessity for exhortation, for commands, for charges. The Apostle Paul lays out this idea of oughtness, what I'm calling oughtness. This is what you ought to do, for instance, in, uh, in chapter... Uh, 2 of 2 Thessalonians, verse 13. We ought always to give thanks to God for you. Some people are uncomfortable with the oughtness of Scripture, right? They say, well, I've been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. He's done everything and there's nothing else for me to do. Except become holy. And to endure affliction. Those two things. And so that involves the oughtness of Scripture, right? What we ought to do. That, that, that can be burdensome, right? Yeah, I, we, we all kind of... You know what happens when in the middle of the night some sound occurs and you think that you should go check on it and, and then you, you decide not to because you're too tired or cold or whatnot and then it happens again and, and, so, and there's a certain oughtness to that, isn't there? And it won't let you alone. You, you, you know that. And as we come to understand the Scriptures and grow in grace, we will see more and more not only the oughtness of Scripture, but also the fact that, look, the Lord Jesus has empowered me to do this. And not only that, but He's connected, directly connected, my growth in holiness with joy. Why would He do that? I want to be happy without being holy. It's a trick. No, no, it's not a trick. It's the truth. He's connected your growth and holiness to your happiness. You say, oh, I'm happy anyway. Go write a two-page paper on happiness without holiness. I'd like to see that. I'd like to see that. Paul's encouragement in the eternal selection and present validation of their saving faith wasn't merely for chummy good vibes. It was certainly a reminder that along with their being chosen, there came the inevitability of two things. (coughs) Two things, as I mentioned. An eternity of holiness in heaven and affliction in this life. So he then tells them how to walk. Paul doesn't chide, but he does charge. He exhorts, he commands. 
Are you offended by the fact that you're discussed as a sheep? You might be interested to know that sheep never get to the point where they don't need a shepherd. There is no place in their lives when they are living faithfully and doing what sheep do that they won't need a shepherd. There's no graduation ceremony for sheep that go live on their own. Nobody gives a sheep a key to the house. Nobody indicates and tells the sheep that the gate's open now and the water faucet's right there. Go ahead and fill the bucket when it gets empty. That never occurs in the life of a sheep. Those things never, never ever happen. But it seems like sometimes we might actually be a little bit offended by the fact that, oh, well, yeah, I need a shepherd. Oh, yep, here's the truth again. I'm being reminded about that. <sighs> yeah, I forgot what I already knew. But doesn't we don't have to approach it like that, right? We can say, oh, there's the shepherd. Here's the truth. He loves me. He's caring for me. I can grow in this. There's goodness here. This is the idea. Chapter 2, verse 13. We ought always to give thanks to God for you. We're bound to give thanks to God for you. This validates the deep relationships possible around the gospel. Our religion is the most deeply held aspect of who we are. That's why it's such a challenge to maintain and hold to the truth. Their growing faith is a significant source of the Apostle Paul's joy. He also has an encouragement for the permanence of their faith. He said, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. Their faith is permanent. Why is this so important? Why is it so important that we embrace that a sovereign God has chosen us for salvation from the beginning? Because that's the only place that sheep can be safe. It's the only spiritual location that a sheep can be safe. My Master has chosen me. And He's going to take care of me. And He is that which is stable. And what He says is the foundation of my very life. And I don't have to fret about things. I need to check things out. Whatever the other sheep are telling me, I need to look at the truth. Right? But my master, we're, we're good. We're tight. He has promised me that although I am a chocolate mess, that he will not walk away from me. And that's what's so important about this spiritual safety. God chose you from the beginning for salvation. The next two things may surprise you. To be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. There's this idea of holiness yet once again. And you may think that belief in the truth or faith in the truth should come before sanctification or holiness. But the point is, is that if we're going to heaven, we've got to pass through both of those things. We've got to pass through a growing sanctification and we've got to pass through a continued growth in faith in what it is that God is telling us. That's the very end of salvation. What I mean by that isn't that it's its termination point. It's that it, that's its goal. Just like the chief end of man. What it is? What is it we're all about? Why did God create us? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The end of salvation. Complete and eternal redemption from sin and misery. What did you want to be saved from? Because we're saved from sin and the misery associated with sin. We're saved from eternal damnation associated with our crushing problem of sin. That's what we're saved from. 
But if we're looking to our master for things that aren't in that category, then we are going to be disappointed and destabilized. We must be believing in the truth in order to have sanctification, perseverance, and grace and to obtain this salvation. Verse 2.15 So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. Conviction. What is it? Well, as I mentioned before, it's important that we see that the Apostle Paul here says to stand firm and hold to the traditions. That can look like a number of things that aren't real. We've all seen blustery confidence. That isn't biblical conviction. Conviction must be distinguished from pride and self-trust. And that's something that isn't necessarily easy. That's going to take um, a continued charge, the commands of God through His Word, the sharpening uh, of brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we stand on that which is immovable. That's conviction. That's conviction. Conviction isn't doing something that your conscience tells you to do, Because your conscience may or may not be uh, a real reflection of what the truth is. We want to grow in that. But when you abide by your conscience, that is not necessarily real reassuring. Because our consciences are imperfect. Stand firm. Hold fast. Be immovable by holding to the traditions of biblical orthodoxy. Some of you are doing some discipleship with me. You know that the August memory verse is Joshua 1.8. Joshua 1.8, The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. And I would draw your attention to this idea that the word is in your mouth... And I would recommend that you listen to yourself reciting your memory verses. But also we see that we're directed to do according to all that was written in it. Do according to all that is written in it. That involves application. That involves... Discussion That involves the simple process of spiritual growth that we see that the Lord has determined that we're going to grow together spiritually. He's decided that the best way for this to be accomplished, right, is, is that we do this in the fellowship of a God-called church. I pray today that that will be our delight. Let's pray.